If you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 13. We are finishing our series in the book of Nehemiah this morning, and um, Nehemiah really ends the book with a challenge to those of us who, uh, to re- who, who read and hear his words. So I'm going to read all of Nehemiah 13 this morning. It says this, Nehemiah 13, verse 1. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned that curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by a commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests." While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. And then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chamber, and I brought back there the vessels of the household of God with a grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses, and I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan the son of Zachar, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gate of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice, but I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Challenge, right? 
From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And then I commanded that the Levites commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. (laughs) And I made them take oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, the king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do, all this, and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoda, Jeho, Jehoida, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites." Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Oh God, we uh, gather, and, and even just having heard this passage read, some of us might be raising an eyebrow and thinking, what in the world is going on? And God, just in a, even in a more general sense, <clears throat> what, a, what a strange, uncommon thing it is to come and, and listen to somebody read and explain your word. And we pray that you would give us ears to hear Not my words, God, but the words of your spirit as you make Jesus more alive to us. God, we are thankful that you speak to us. Would you give us ears to hear? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we are finishing our journey through the book of Nehemiah. We started this series through the book of Nehemiah 15 Sundays ago on August 15th. I don't know if you can remember back that long. It's almost a third of a year ago. Uh, We were meeting outside at the acreage. It was hot. Um, But we were meeting outside, and we we had a lot of of questions, a lot of uncertainty as a church. We didn't know um, where we were going to be meeting, but we knew that it was, though the sun was beating down on us on August 15th, at 9 a.m. outside at the acreage that winter in Colorado was coming. And so um, there we were, meeting outside. We thought at the time that we might have beaten this whole COVID thing. And it's interesting, I think, to to reflect on that as we now finish the book 15 weeks later. When we began this series on August 15th, it was the first time that our church had met for two consecutive Sundays in person in almost in, in, in over 18 months, in over 17 months. 
And so we gathered with hope and also, I think, with curiosity, wondering what the future might hold. And so as we look um, to the book, as we looked to the book of Nehemiah, or we, we rather looked to the book of Nehemiah because the book of Nehemiah describes a very different time and different place from our own, but a time in which God's people faced remarkably similar circumstances to those that we face. In the book of Nehemiah, God called, God through Nehemiah called his people to rebuild and he begins to renew his people, and though on the surface they were called to rebuild a wall, the wall around the city of Jerusalem, to, uh, to provide physical protection. <laughs> God calls his people <laughs> to rebuild. And though, though, though on the surface they were rebuilding a physical wall, there is a deeper sense in which they were being called to be rebuilt as a people, as God's people, as a spiritual people, and to reorient their lives around God. And much the same thing is happening in our day and in our time. And so I told you that morning 15 weeks ago, uh, we started this series, and I, and I told you about a man named Vaclav Havel, who was a Czech playwright who then became a prisoner, who then very unexpectedly became the president of the Czech Republic. And being thrust into a position of leadership, leading a society to rebuild its culture after it had been devastated for 50 years, first by the Nazis and then by communists. There was one word that encapsulated Vaclav Havel's vision for his people, and it was the word responsibility. And Stephen Garber summarized the mission of Vaclav Havel with these words. He said that, Vaclav Havel understood that after generations of the domination of his country by Nazis and communists, unless the Czech people took responsibility for their own future, they would have no future. And in a similar way, God's people in 445 BC and God's people in 2021, I think, face a similar question. Sure, we can talk about the way that circumstances have gone and maybe the way that uh, culture has shifted and maybe we can do analysis or even place blame, but the bottom line is unless we take responsibility for our future as Christians in this time and in this place, our future is incredibly unclear and uncertain. And yes, of course, I know that God is the one who is at work building his church, but as he does that, he is working not apart from us, he is working in us and he is working through us. And we cannot remain passive bystanders. God is at work through his people. And he invites us to join him in that work. And that means taking responsibility. And so at the end of the book of Nehemiah, what we see is that the physical work of rebuilding the wall is done. But the work of renewing and rebuilding the people of God as a spiritual people is not yet complete. And I think in the same way, uh, we, could, we could say much the same thing is, is true for the table. Fifteen weeks ago, we were meeting outside, baking in the August sun, knowing that winter was approaching, wondering where we would be, and God has answered our prayer, and that is amazing, and he's provided this space and this building, and it's wonderful, and yet the work of rebuilding and renewing God's people spiritually is ongoing. And once again, Nehemiah is remarkably relevant and speaks directly, I think, into our circumstances as we finish this book this morning. 
Because Nehemiah presents us with a question that we will in one way or another have to answer as a church as we move forward. And it's a question of responsibility. I think more importantly or more specifically, it's a question of intention. Do we actually intend to be the sorts of people that God is calling us to be? Having seen what we've seen, having received what we've received, having seen God answer our prayers, having experienced his grace in tangible and real ways, how will we respond? Do we actually intend to become the people that God is calling us to be? Or do we rather intend to just sort of passively wander through life and see what happens next? We've talked at length about this reality that every one of us matters. I mean, that's been the clear message over and over again. It's not just Nehemiah that's leading the people to rebuild. It's the people of God together rebuilding. And so every single one of us matters and every single one of us has a role to play because this place matters. And God is going to use each one of us as he carries out his mission in this place. Do we actually intend to follow God in becoming the sorts of people that he's calling us to be? So that the table might, not, not, not so that the table can be anything special, but so that the table might be a useful and effective part of God's mission in East Boulder County, Colorado. So in order to really understand what that might look like, I want to once more ask you to look with me at Nehemiah. And this final chapter, we have to understand what's going on here because there's, there's a detail that I think it would be really easy for us to miss. And if we miss this detail, we would not understand what's happening in Nehemiah 13. Because in verse 6, Nehemiah says, While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. Now, obviously, we don't measure the passage of time in our day by like the reign of King Artaxerxes of Babylon. And so the 32nd year of his reign probably doesn't mean anything to us. But if you look at the, the way the um, book started in chapter 1, it started in the 12th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes of Babylon. And, and so what's happening is this. Nehemiah, big picture, was born and grew up in Babylon while the Jewish people were in exile there. And somehow he ascends into the court of the king and he is the cupbearer, which is in some ways a ceremonial title, but, but it's like becoming the, um, like the prime minister uh, of, of the kingdom of the, the empire of Babylon. And though he's there at the king's right hand and, and has all this incredible influence, God calls him to return to Jerusalem and lead the people in rebuilding the wall. And he did that originally, returning to Jerusalem around the year 445 B.C. And scholars tell us that he was there, and everything we've read so far, um, Nehemiah was there in Jerusalem for about 12 years. And after 12 years, for some reason, he returns to Artaxerxes, um, the, the emperor of Persia, in the city of Babylon. And, um, and so he goes back, you know, in some ways, to the place where he grew up. He goes back to Babylon, and he says here in verse, 16, or verse 6, I was not in Jerusalem because I went to the king. So he returns to the king. Maybe the king recalls him. Maybe he's, he's got more official work to do. Uh, but he remains in Babylon for about 20 years. And so there's a gap between everything we've read before this morning uh, up to the end of chapter 12 and what we read in chapter 13 of, of about 20 or 25 years. 
20 or 25 years have gone by, and Nehemiah, he now returns, having gone back to Babylon, he returns again to Jerusalem, and he comes back to Jerusalem to see what is happening, and he's not terribly impressed, (laughs) to put it mildly. Things have not gone well in his absence. In fact, the word that he uses in verse 7 is evil. He says, what was happening when I returned to Jerusalem is evil. Things have not gone well at all. And so Nehemiah begins what the chapter heading, if you're looking at it in in many Bibles, the the chapter heading says Nehemiah's final reforms, which I think is a very tactful way to talk about pulling people's hair out and chasing them off. (laughs) His final reforms. And what we see here is that the physical work of rebuilding is done, but the people still need renewal. The people themselves still need renewal. And there's really three areas in which God, through Nehemiah, calls his people to renewal. And, and if you've been with us over the last you know, period of time, 15 weeks, as we've been working through Nehemiah, none of these is going to come as a surprise. None of the things that he says here is, is novel in the book at this point. But he's, he's essentially calling us back to our identity as God's people. And he's saying that who we are as God's people is fundamental to the way that we function and operate in the world. So three areas in which God, through Nehemiah, calls his people to renewal. And the first has to do with with God's word. In verse 1, it says, On that day they read the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, this is not a surprise. We've seen this throughout the book of Nehemiah. We see this throughout the Bible, really, that God brings renewal when his people are committed to his word. And often that comes with a rediscovering of God's word, both individually or corporately, saying, God, I, I, never, I never knew. I never knew before. And yet God renews his people as we renew our commitment to his word. And so the obvious question for us, I think, as we look to God to renew us and rebuild us in this time is, are we committed to God's word? Uh, do, we, do we actually read the Bible? Do we make it a priority? I, I was talking with somebody recently who said that, that um, many Christians, many of us as Christians, we've become Bible quoters, not Bible readers. We, we, we can, any of us can quote uh, a verse of the Bible to justify what it is that we're, you know, wanting to justify. But do we actually read it? Do we let it shape us and form us? I was reminded of a um, uh, something Stephen Colbert did several years ago. Um, as I was thinking about this this week, you know, Stephen Colbert uh, before he whatever the show you host now, the, the Colbert Report that was more satirical. Um, and this, this was, I don't know, eight years ago or something, at a time when there was a, there was a big controversy in, uh, I think it was in Alabama, where a government courthouse had displayed the Ten Commandments in the courthouse, and there was this big controversy about whether it's appropriate to display the Ten Commandments um, in a, in a you know, U.S. government building. And Stephen Colbert had a, a politician from that state on his show. And this politician was defending the, the display of the Ten Commandments in the government building. And, and he, um, you know, this, this politician is saying, well, it's really important because the Ten Commandments, as the Word of God, are the foundation for all human justice. And so by, by displaying the Ten Commandments, we're upholding the, the truth uh, of God who is the author of justice. And Stephen Colbert says, 
so the Ten Commandments are really important then. And the guy says, yeah. And Stephen Colbert says, what are the Ten Commandments? And this politician just, you know, it was crickets. <laughs> I mean, there's ten of them. He'd, he didn't know what one of them was. And the truth, I think, is that nothing will undermine the work of renewal faster than Christians who pay lip service to the Word of God but never actually read it. And so in Nehemiah's time and in ours as well, renewal begins with a commitment to God's Word, a a willingness um, not just to use God's Word as like a stick that we whack other people with, but to read God's Word and be humbled by it to seat ourselves under God's word. Are we committed to God's word? Renewal always comes from a commitment to God's word. The second area of reform here has to do with worship, and there's, there's three parts to this. There's, um, there's the Sabbath. Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the three parts in just a minute. So uh, the, the, the first thing is, is, is really weird. Uh, they're all pretty weird, to be honest. <laughs> they, um, the first thing is there's this guy named Tobiah. And you might remember from earlier in the book that there were these two characters, Sanballat and Tobiah, who are like constantly antagonizing Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is constantly having to deal with their sabotage. And then uh, they go away, but then Nehemiah leaves, and they've come back when Nehemiah, while Nehemiah is gone. And so... Um, Tobiah has now moved into the temple. <laughs> there was a storeroom where they used to keep resources for uh, the, the worship of God in the temple, and somehow uh, Tobiah has gotten them to clear all of that stuff out, and he's moved into the temple. He's like living in the storage room in the back of the church. <laughs> It's just really weird. But what's happening is that he is using the resources that are set aside for the worship of God to make himself comfortable. He's using the church, he's using God for his own ends. The second part of the neglect of worship is seen in verse 10. Nehemiah says, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. The leaders, those who lead God's people in worship, the priests and the Levites and the singers, had not been provided for. So in 20 or 25 years since Nehemiah has been gone, uh, they're not getting paid. And so they've had to go back home and they've had to like start up the old family farm again. Uh, They're they're working two jobs now. They're doing the, the work of leading God's people, but they're not getting paid for it, so they're having to provide for their families In other ways, the people of God were supposed to set aside a portion of all that they made in order to support those who lead God's people in worship, but they weren't doing that. And since they had neglected that responsibility, the leaders, the Levites, the singers, the priests, they were were content to be bivocational. But God says that's not the way that it should work. And the worship of God's people suffers when those that God calls to lead his people in worship don't have the adequate time and resources and financial freedom to do that work. And then the third part of neglecting worship, as, we, as I said, um, has to do with the Sabbath. And there's this long section, verses 15 to 22, that has to do with the Sabbath. And one of the things that has made God's people distinct from all other people is not that they're better, but that God gives God's people 
one day of, out of every week to set aside for rest and worship. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago, but here in Nehemiah 13, much like in our own day, um, the Sabbath day looks just like every other day of the week. And, and, and people, uh, and Nehemiah says, this is not the way that it should be. And so we could look into each of these kind of three areas where God's people have neglected worship in more detail. But today, what I want us to think about is the reality that renewal happens when God's people make worship a priority. That intentionality is important when it comes to worship. Listen, Nehemiah does some strange things here, doesn't he? When he finds there's a guy living in the storeroom of the church, he takes his uh, furniture and throws it out in the street. Um, he, he, um, the leaders aren't getting paid. He, he comes and he says, I confronted the officials. I don't know, he did some budget ninjutsu or something, but he, he got it taken care of. I confronted them and I fixed it. They were ignoring the Sabbath, and Nehemiah says, I commanded them to close the gates of the city. And he kept the gates of the city closed the whole day so that merchants couldn't come in and out of the city. And in the next section, which we're going to talk about in a minute, it says he pulled somebody's hair out. Um, you know, I'm not sure that every part of the Bible is not prescriptive, okay? So <laughs> it's not saying if, if, if somebody's, you know, not worshiping God, go pull their hair out, um, <laughs> but I, I guess this is the time that they lived in, right? Uh, I'm not sure that this is the way that God would prefer us to handle these things, but what we see clearly here is, is the intentionality. And the intentionality, oftentimes, I think, as I'm, as I'm meeting with people throughout the week, and, um, you know, let, let, let's just say, if this hits too close to home, let's just say, I've only been your pastor for six months. So uh, I'm describing conversations I've had with other people and other churches and other periods and times. But often I'll, I'll be meeting with somebody, and we're, we're having, maybe we're having lunch on Wednesday, and as we're leaving, I'll say, okay, great, uh, we're going to see you at church on Sunday. And the response is like, yeah, that's the plan. Or, yeah, probably, we'll probably be there. Or, you know, some variation of words that indicate, you know, I mean, we're open to it unless something else comes up. <laughs> and we know statistically from those who study this stuff that committed Christians now consider regularly attending worship as being at church one out of every six Sundays. I mean, statistically, that's what's going on in the church in North America. And we say one out of six Sundays is great. I'll be there unless something else comes up. And Nehemiah says, shut the gates. <laughs> and let me just be clear. Like, I'm in no way saying we should forcibly coerce people into coming to church. And I know that we've got several families that are dealing with COVID and sickness. And I'm not talking about any of that, right? This is about intention, this is about what are we committed to. If we say that we want to be faithful and if we say that we want to grow, do we make it a priority to do the things that God says will facilitate that growth? I mean, think about as an analogy, I sign up for a membership at a new gym and I'm on the monthly payment plan and I'm paying, I don't know what it is to go to a gym because I don't do that, but if I did, let's say I'm paying $30 a month to go to the gym, but I show up once out of every six weeks. 
like, I'm, my shape is not going to change showing up at, uh, at the gym once out of every six weeks. What's the point? I, I love the guy who, um, the, the original guy who was like the founder of CrossFit, I listened to an interview with him several years ago, and he said, sometimes people call me up and they say, I'm thinking about starting CrossFit. And he says, well, let me know when you make up your mind. And he hangs up the phone. <laughs> because what he's talking about is intention. There's no point in joining a gym if we're not committed to going. The point is not if, that you're a terrible person if you don't come to church more. The point is that God is renewing us and shaping us into the sorts of people who reflect his character to a broken and hurting world. And one of the primary ways that God shapes us into the sorts of people who could be useful in a broken and hurting world is through regular worship. As we behold God's glory, we end up reflecting his character to our world more completely. And we cannot be formed by something that we are only casually committed to. Last night, a friend of mine on Facebook shared a quote from Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard was a philosophy professor at USC and Christian author, and Dallas Willard wrote these words. He said, contemporary Western churches do not require following Christ in his example, spirit, and teaching as a condition of membership, either of entering into or continuing in fellowship of a denomination or a local church. What, what, what Dallas Willard is talking about is that Christianity in our time has become completely a function of what we say we believe, not a way that we actually live. So far as the visible Christian institutions of our day are concerned, discipleship clearly is optional. Churches are therefore filled with undiscipled disciples. Most problems, listen to this, most problems in contemporary churches can be explained by the fact that members have not yet decided to follow Christ. That's a stunning statement. Most problems in churches can be explained by the reality that we have not yet decided to follow Christ. We believe in him, but we don't actually intend to live more like him. Again, I'm not saying this to make anybody feel guilty. I'm saying this because the clear teaching of the Bible is that God loves to be found in the presence of his people. That's you know, the song we sang, Psalm 84, earlier in our service. That's what it's all about. God loves to be present when his people gather for worship. There is simply no way to sustain a vibrant, fruitful, life-giving faith, the sort of faith that is actually a blessing to our neighbors with an ambivalent posture towards God's church. Jesus has committed to his people. He calls us his bride. And we cannot be committed to Jesus without being committed to his bride. And so if you long for Jesus' church to be more than what we see portrayed accurately or inaccurately in our culture and called out for on social media, then we have to be committed to God's church. We have to be committed to worship. It won't simply happen passively. Finally, briefly, there's a whole section from verse 23 onward that, I mean, did this make you cringe as I read this? Don't marry foreign women. They're the worst. <laughs> um, what in the world is going on here? And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago in more detail, so I'm, I'm only going to kind of talk about one aspect of this. But this is not about race. This is not xenophobia. Um, it's about faithfulness to God. It's a warning against marrying somebody who will compromise your faith. 
Like I said, more, a lot more could be said about that than I have time for before, but, but the, the important thing I want you to notice is the effect. Why is it important for us to be uh, faithful in our relationships? Well, verses 23 and 24 says this, In those days also I saw that the Jews who had married, uh, I saw the Jews who married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people, meaning other people. The children couldn't speak the language. Like that, that's the concern. Syncretism is the, the blending of the cares of the world with the worship of God. And what this passage is saying is that it takes its toll on our children. The Barna Group reports that increasingly Americans appear to be creating unique, highly customized worldviews based on feelings, experiences, and opportunities. What they're saying is that increasingly what passes for Christianity in our time isn't Christian at all. It's not derived from the Bible. When we confuse Jesus' invitation to take up our cross with a call to a comfortable lifestyle, it's the next generation that suffers. It's the next generation that suffers. What this passage is showing us is that if we really want to mess up our kids, like if you really want to mess up your kids, what you should do is argue about politics in Jesus' name and somehow imply that by following Jesus, it makes your life more comfortable and he will give you nice things. If you really want to mess up your kids, use pretty much anything as an excuse for missing church. It will make no sense to them, and so they'll give up on it when they grow up. That's the tragedy. Because it might be possible, I suppose, for us to sort of do many of these things and still maintain a faith in Jesus, but it will wreak havoc on the next generation. And if you think about it, like that logic works in reverse too. Like maybe the problem, the reason that the church in the U.S. has so many problems now is the fruit of the generations that went before us. And so now we are where we are and God is calling us to rebuild. God is at work renewing us. And really the whole point of this sermon is the, how that happens is not really that mysterious. Like, how is God going to renew his people in this time? Well, if we pay attention to his, Bible, to his word, if we make worship a priority, then he will form us more and more into the sorts of people who make a difference in our world. It's not, it's not a question of what. It's a question of intention. The question is, do we intend to become those sorts of people? Do we intend to be a church that takes God, that takes God at his word? Because it won't happen if we passively just wait around to see how things go. Now, let me be clear that, um, about a couple things. So intention and commitment have to go together. And so there, there's, no there's no point in being committed to something without actually intending to do it, right? And I'm not equally committed to everything in my life. Like, I am committed, I told you last week, I'm committed to skiing this winter. And I'm committed to figuring out how to get my family skiing. And I don't know what that is gonna look like yet, but I'm, I guess that's what credit cards are for. Like, I'm gonna make that happen. 
right? I'm committed to it. Um, you know, some things I'm less committed to, but I'm open to them. Luke Alligood said to me this week, he said, hey, a couple weeks ago, you said that you had been training for like a half marathon. Do you want to run together? And I was like, I'm open to it. Like, I might try it and see how it goes. There's some things I'm like absolutely not committed to, like driving the speed limit. It'd probably be a good idea. I am, I'm not committed to it. I'm aware of, don't look at me like you don't, you're not committed to it either, okay? Like, it'd probably be a good thing. So what I'm saying is just acknowledging the reality that God is not saying you had better be committed to what I'm inviting you to commit to here. I'm simply asking us or inviting us to acknowledge where we are. Maybe we're aware. Maybe we're open. Maybe we're committed, but we're, that there's not actually intention. What I would ask you to consider is, would you take the next step? Would you just think about taking the next step? And what might that look like for you? Listen, I know that there has been a lot of law and command and probably ought in this sermon. And to be perfectly honest, I was really tempted to soften most of it. But I think we have to be clear about what God's word is saying and inviting us into because it's as we see the fullness of what God requires of us and invites us into that we see the full beauty of what Jesus has done for us. And if we soft pedal what God asks of us, we won't see the beauty of what he's done. Nehemiah's refrain throughout this passage, did you, did you hear it as I read this passage earlier? He said, Remember me, remember me, remember me, O oh God. Not that God would forget him. He's saying, God, remember your promise. This is, this is covenant language. God, remember your covenant. Remember the promises that you have made. And ultimately, what that means is not, you know, if we, well, what that means ultimately is not that we pray, you know, God bless me because I've paid attention to your word and I show up at church and I'm not like the rest of the world. No, that's not what it is at all. Rather, we pray, God, remember me as you remember your son. God, as you remember your son, as you think about him, would you think about me? He is your very word made flesh. He is the true people of Israel embodied in one man. He is everything God has called his people to be. He is the one who lived perfectly what God lays out for us here in this passage. He is the one who was crucified to exchange places with us, and he rose again in order to give us his perfection. So God, please, when you remember your son, remember me. When you look at me, look at what Jesus has done on my behalf. You come before God clothed in the, rec the record of another. When we ask God to remember us, we're saying, God, when you look at me, would you look at the record of Jesus in my place? And it's as you come before God and knowing that God sees you clothed in the record of another, knowing that God smiles at you, that you increasingly become the sort of person that is described in this passage. And that's the good news. I'm going to see if there are any questions for the Q&A this morning. Okay, what is the sermon series after Advent going to be? <laughs> wow, somebody's planning ahead. 
Um, my, my understanding is that, is that in uh, early January after Advent, we are going to be uh, looking at the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. Yeah. Um, okay, another question. A simple interpretation of this passage could be that the law of God is of primary importance and that God's people should do everything they can to enforce it, even if violence is required. I also think a lot of Christians today would agree with that interpretation. Do you agree? I'm assuming you disagree with that take. Why? Oh, gosh. These are the sorts of questions I would really love to answer Tuesday over a cup of coffee than in the next 30 seconds. But, um, yeah, so I would, I would absolutely disagree that, God, um, that God's law should be enforced. Um, I'm trying to look at the question. Should be enforced even if violence is required. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of reasons for that, biblical reasons for that. And um, the main reason is that the Bible doesn't say that. Uh, the, the Bible itself doesn't say that God's law should be in, uh, enforced with violence. Um, God's people as a nation in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, had certain laws that um, were revealed by God and were enforced as the law of any nation is enforced. The people of God after the life, death, resurrection of Jesus um, are not identified with any one nation. And so there is simply no... Um, God has entrusted the authority, broadly speaking, of the sword, and that's a whole other discussion, to the state, not to the church. And so there is no nation that God has chosen and said, this is my people, this is my representative, this is the government that enforces my will. Um, on this earth. So, yeah, I would disagree because God has, the, the Bible doesn't uh, encourage us to use violence to enforce God's law. Okay, let me pray for us as we transition to the Lord's Supper. God, we pray now that you would take. Um, what we've studied over the last 15 weeks in the book of Nehemiah and apply it to us and make it real in our lives. God, it's not more willpower that is going to enable us um, to be the sorts of people that you're calling us to be. It's only as your spirit moves in our midst. And yet, God, we want to be the sorts of people that you call us to be. We want to be people who love your word. We want to be people who love to worship, but God, we're half-hearted, we're fickle, we're easily distracted. And so God, I pray that you would uh, enable us to, in our own way, just take the next step. And maybe we would say we're not committed at all to these things. Would you help us to just be open? God, maybe, maybe we would say, well, we're open to these things, but we're not committed to them. Or maybe we, we would say, we're, you know, we're committed to them, but only in a theoretical way. We're not really intending to change our behavior. God, by your Spirit, would you win our hearts, our affections, our wills, that we might more fully be the people that you are calling us to be. 
and we might find that the gospel is actually true, that as we lose our lives for your sake, then we find them. Would you take this bread and wine as we eat it and drink it this morning and use it to nourish and strengthen our faith? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.